KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Nick. Hi, Taylor. We have a great show today. We're realizing how important it is to make sure that the laws support safe streets. And our first interview is with Transportation Alternatives. It's an organization for safe streets in New York. And their associate director of communications, Alexa Sledge, is here. And she's going to fill us in on a couple of campaigns that they're working on. One, which I really love, is called 25 by 25. And it calls for changing 25% of the space used by cars to transform that into space for people by the year 2025, which is, what, a year and a half away? And if you've ever been to New York, you know how much space there is for car storage on the streets. Actually, it's supposed to be 75% of the public space is for cars. Wow. The great campaign. Waste. It's very cool. But the next thing that they're working on is a program called Sammy's Law. It's a bill that they're trying to get passed in the New York State House. Here's that interview. I'm with Alexa Sledge from Transportation Alternatives. And Transportation Alternatives works on a whole range of complete streets issues. The one that caught my attention most recently is Sammy's Law, which it looks like it would put 20 mile per hour, would make it possible to have a 20 mile per hour speed limit in in New York City. Yeah, exactly. So right now in the state of New York, um, actually Albany gets to decide what our speed limits are down in New York City. So Sammy's Law makes it finally possible for New York City electeds to make New York City speed limits. And we can also choose to have those speed limits under 25 miles per hour, which would be huge. Then we can decide the speed limits on our own streets. So right now the law is you cannot have speed limits lower than what, 25? Um, you, there's some exceptions for school zones. Um, but right now, yeah, Albany gets to decide our speed limits and we do not get to make our own personal choices. And so Sammy's Law would change that. Yeah, absolutely. So Sammy's Law is named for Sammy Cohen Eckstein, who was killed by a reckless driver when he was 12 years old, almost 10 years ago. And so when he was killed almost 10 years ago, his mother, Amy Cohen, founded the organization Families for Safe Streets, which is an organization they always say that no one ever wants to join. It's entirely made up of people who lost loved ones, their children, their partners, their parents, their siblings to traffic violence. And so ever since then, she's been fighting for Sammy's Law, which is named after Sammy. And it would allow us to finally control our own speed limits in everywhere in the five boroughs. Controlling your own speed limits. Why wouldn't the city be able to do that? Um, It's just an old law that Albany gets to control our speed limits, but there is huge support in New York City for New York City controlling its old speed limits. The mayor supports it. The governor supports it. The New York City DOT commissioner, a supermajority of city council. It has big support in New York City. It's just there's an antiquated way of doing things that we need to move past. And Sammy's law will finally allow us to do that. Is it going through this law? Right now, we've been fighting for Sammy's law in specific for three years. Um, It passed the state Senate in 2021, and this year it has support from everyone except for we don't have state assembly speaker Carl Hasty expressing tons of support right now. So what we need right now is for Speaker Hasty to bring Sammy's law to a vote on the assembly floor. And actually, Sammy's mother, Amy Cohen, as well as two other members of Families for Safe Streets are on hunger strike until the assembly speaker brings Sammy's law to a vote. The speaker is deliberately not bringing this to a vote? And what happens if it's not brought to a vote? 
Well, our whole goal is to make sure that it just can't be something that dies quietly or dies in the shadows. So we're going to keep being very public about it, asking for it, and being very clear about what we want, which is really just a vote on this bill. We think that if it is brought to the floor and it is brought to a vote, it will pass. It really just needs to be allowed to be brought to the floor. So we don't want these people to be able to kill this bill in the shadows, be able to just hide from it, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, because it has so much support everywhere. And we believe it also does have support in the state assembly. And so we think that if they do bring it to a vote by the end of session, then it will pass and obviously then be, be signed by the governor and become law. Is it just that it's like slipping their minds that it's not being brought to a vote? That's really the million dollar question is why exactly they don't want to bring this to a vote. We have asked repeatedly. They say they're talking to people, talking to drivers, but we haven't heard any real solid arguments for why you wouldn't want to have this law. And also when you look at the polling on the ground, like 72% of people in New York City support Sammy's Law. It's very popular and it's been shown to be very popular also with all the elected officials in and around New York City. So it's really the question to us is the exact same, like why won't Speaker Hasty bring this to a vote? Um, and so that's basically what the whole point of the hunger strike is to ask him to be like, why won't you do this? Why won't you bring it to a vote? And we need you to be very, very clear about all of your motivations and all of your thoughts. Wow. So Sammy's family, you said his mother is on the hunger strike? Yes. And, his mother is part of the hunger strike. And, and someone else? Fabiola is also on hunger strike, and so is Lizzie. And they're all in Albany today, and they all announced their hunger strike, and they will remain in Albany until Speaker Hasty calls the vote, and they will not eat until he does so. Wow. They're dedicated because people in their families were killed by cars, I guess, right? Exactly. They all lost family members to cars. I know... Um, Fabiola lost her son, Brian, when he was only five years old. They're just asking for the ability to have 20 mile per hour speed limit. And they're really just asking for a vote and for people to be on the record saying exactly where they stand on this bill. Because for three years, members of Families for Safe Streets have just been traveling to Albany over and over and over again, bringing photos of their loved ones and just begging all of these state electeds for a vote on this bill. And so all we're asking for is after three years of constantly having to talk about your children that have died, your parents that have died, bringing photos of them, having to constantly relive those memories just to bring this bill to a vote. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the other things Transportation Alternatives has going on. Our work really falls into two different buckets. So one bucket would be these bigger citywide, even statewide campaigns and ideas are pushing for. And so the chief example there would be um, 25 by 25, which is where we're trying to reallocate 25% of the space currently used for moving and storing vehicles for other uses by 2025. And that encompasses so, so, so many things like having more trees on our sidewalks, having containerized trash, daylighting all of our intersections, having more bike parking and things like that. And that's really a citywide vision that we have for New York City. While we're talking about 25 by 25, isn't something like 75% of the space in the city given over to cars, even though most people in the city don't have cars? It's definitely on the 25 by 25 website. And it's something like of the land between buildings in New York City, some crazy high percentage of it is for cars, even though so, so, so many people in New York City do not personally own cars. New York City has the lowest car ownership rate of any city in the United States. Usually when they do it via the census, they say how many people, like how many households have cars. So I feel like it isn't even that good of a marker because, for example, you could live in an apartment with four roommates. And if one of your roommates has a car, you're considered a car household, even though the vast majority of the people that live there don't have a car. 
Um, whereas when you look at other cities, every single person has their own car. Um, so I wouldn't say it's a very good metric, but yes, a crazy high amount of our space is used towards personal vehicles when so, so, so many people don't have them. And again, it's sort of a similar thing to what we were talking about, where people who are not in the city are making policy for the space and how how fast at least how or cars are going or whether they're there at all. Yeah, exactly. Like a really good example of that would be congestion pricing. We've been fighting for congestion pricing for decades, um, but it finally got passed in 2019 and it's finally going to take some steps to actually be implemented now that it's 2023. Um, and so when you look at congestion pricing, the loudest critics are people that don't live in New York City. You see so much criticism primarily out of New Jersey. Um, and we don't have a say in what New Jersey does with their tolling infrastructure. We don't decide what the New Jersey Turnpike's tolls are, but they're like, no, you can never have congestion pricing. And it's like, well, everyone makes the decisions for their own area. And that's the case in so many places is that really decisions are being made for the convenience of people in cars who are just cutting through on their way somewhere else, not for the people who live, you know, whose kids are, are going to be on the streets where cars are speeding. That's so true. And it's especially true when you look at so much of the highway work that we're doing. So right now in New York, we have the BQE, which is the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and it's literally crumbling down. It's not going to be safe to drive on it within the next 10 to 15 years. So the city has to come up with a plan of what we're going to do with the BQE. And it's crazy because if you look at the actual numbers of who's driving across the BQE on a daily basis, it's just people driving through. Like the vast majority of people that actually live in this neighborhood are not driving on the BQE every single day. And yet people have to live with all of these horrible consequences of having it. Like I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and the area that I live in is called Asthma Alley because so many children here have asthma because of this massive highway that they don't use. Wow. Is there some kind of a principle or like a, a legal mechanism where people who actually live in a neighborhood have a right to not have cars speeding through it? I don't know. That's a really good question. I feel like that would also be really relevant for the Cross Bronx Expressway because there's so, so, so many issues with asthma and other really negative health outcomes in the South Bronx because these people are breathing in horrible, horrible air every single day, even though they are not the ones driving on that road. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't seem supportable. Agreed. And so I would also say that the BQE and talking about highways and highway removal, highway teardown is another really big part of our citywide, statewide work. And then the other bucket that I was talking about earlier would be like those more local campaigns. So for example, we have a major, major street in Brooklyn that has a unprotected bike lane on it. It's just paint. And so people are constantly parked in that bike lane. There's constantly horrible crashes on that road. And so like a major campaign of ours right now is to get a protected bike lane on that road. So that's definitely a lot more minor. It's not something we're talking about every single day. But if that were actually to happen, if we did actually get this protected bike lane, it would serve so, 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 so many people every single day biking across Brooklyn. How is bike infrastructure, how is the rate at which it's happening or the rate at which street calming is happening going in the city? I would definitely say it's not going quickly enough. So in New York City, we have something called the Streets Plan which is a legal mandate that was passed by city council that requires that New York City and our Department of Transportation does certain things by certain dates. So they were required to build 30 miles of protected bike lanes last year. They didn't, they built somewhere around 20. They're required to build 50 miles of protected bike lanes this year. Obviously they're nowhere close to that. Like we have all of these mandates and all of these rules that everyone's agreed should happen and need to happen and they aren't happening. We have seen a lot of new announcements of bike lanes, so we're excited to see if that comes to fruition. 
but it's just so, so, so clear that when we have these protected bike lanes, it's safer for drivers, it's safer for people on bikes, it's safer for pedestrians, it's significantly safer for our youngest pedestrians, our oldest pedestrians. And so getting these projects physically in the ground is critical. And we really just can't be waiting on these projects for years like we have been so much of the time. Thank you, Alexa Sledge, for letting me know everything that's going on with transportation alternatives. Thank you so much. That was Alexa Sledge of Transportation Alternatives. Now we have Amy Cullen. She's the mother of Sammy, for which Sammy's Law is named. And it's a law to allow New York City to set its own speed limits. Amy is a member of Families for Safe Streets, and she was just on a hunger strike because although there was overwhelming support from the New York City Council and the State Senate for Sammy's Law, the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, Carl Heastie, wouldn't put the law up for a vote. So this is Amy. I'm with Amy Cohen, who just went on a hunger strike for Sammy's Law, and it's over? Yes, we did the hunger strike for the duration of the session of the New York State Assembly, which is one part of the legislature for a bill named after my son. So Sammy's Law is a simple, no-nonsense measure. It would just remove control from the state and give it to the city to be able for the city to be able to have more control over its speed limit, um, be able to lower it to 20 miles per hour on streets as appropriate. And it is insane what it has taken to try to bring this bill across the finish line. And we have had hundreds of vigils and rallies and press conferences and meetings with elected officials in their district offices and in the, you know, the New York State Capitol from the cities three hours away. We've trekked up there, you know, dozens of times this session. Um, and it came down to the last few days of session. And we were very, very close because the bill is state law, but only affects a part of the state. It requires a message from the city council in New York. And so that passed by a super majority. The Senate passed it by, you know, 55 to seven. We were at the last few days and decided we had no choice but to take dramatic action to, to get their attention. And so I went on a hunger strike with another member of Families for Safe Streets. We committed to doing it until the session ended. Other members joined in for, for part of that. And so we started on Tuesday at 11 o'clock and did it through Saturday late afternoon, 99 hours. We did not eat anything. We ended up during those 99 hours bringing up the total number of assembly members who said they would either support the bill by co-sponsoring or saying they'd vote yes. Out of 100 members, 100, I'm sorry, 150 assembly members, we had 99 who committed to vote yes. And still the Speaker of the Assembly refused to bring the bill for a vote. It never got brought up for a vote? No. So What's going on? We just got word that the assembly is reconvening on a few issues and we'll be bringing back all of the legislators in another week. So, you know, we still have a shot and we will keep fighting. Why do you want a 20 mile per hour speed limit? It's a no nonsense measure. It, it makes the difference between life and death. All the data shows that 20 miles per hour is the safest speed limit in, you know, in, in streets that are, are like New York City, that are pedestrian dense, where people are walking and biking and driving and passengers and all at the same time. You know, we want to keep everyone safe. Do you want to tell us about Sammy? Sure. He was, you know, 12 years old, almost 13. And, you know, New York City kids learn from a very young age how to walk the streets, you know, starting in fourth grade in his middle school. 
Kids are allowed to go out for lunch, meaning they're allowed to leave the building and go to a pizza place down the street. You know, they walk by themselves from a really young age and he knew how to get around. But he came home from school one day and grabbed his snack like he always does uh, and just had to head to the park across the street from our apartment building um, for soccer practice. And, you know, that should not be a deadly act. It's been nine years and every day it's still hard. So you and other members of Families for Safe Streets, there were two other mothers? There was another mother who did it the whole time. There were two other members who who did it for a couple of days. You know, the session was supposed to end on Thursday. They could not stay for the, the duration. It, you know, it got extended to Friday, then it got extended to Saturday. And we were not leaving. They had to look us in the eye every time they walked by. We had signs that said, you know, we're on a hunger strike. We changed the hours. You know, we had the facts on, you know, it's overwhelming support. There was a, an independent poll conducted that 72% of New Yorkers supported the bill. Um, you know, it, it, it is popular. It doesn't cost anything. It's proven. The data is all out there. 20 is plenty. New York, like California, is a very large state. And, you know, it's very different. I actually grew up in upstate New York where it's much more rural or suburban. You know, the the, the density that New York City has is very different from the rest of the state. And people in other parts of the state should not be having a say on what the speed limit should be in New York City. It is crazy. You know, that should be they should be, if anything, incentivizing people to set safe speed limits and not holding us back. It's really unconscionable. Um, so we sat outside of the assembly chambers for, you know, all day, every day from morning until they closed, you know, with our signs, not eating, demanding action. People can call. They have to be from New York to support Sammy's Law. There's lots of different ways you can support, you know, go on our website for more information, familiesforsafestreets.org. People can donate and support this fight. You know, it really is setting an example for, for other localities that 20 is plenty. People should be able to lower their speed limits, set safe speeds. You know, it's part of the safe system approach. It's a key factor. And, you know, we welcome support from near and far. All right. Now your life has been changed again through this. I have been at this fight since Sammy died. You know, we have had successes in in New York. We have, you know, we, we lowered the speed limit originally to 25 miles per hour. We advocated successfully for what is now the country's largest automated enforcement program. A big focus of our fight is redesigning streets where with safety as a priority, you know, complete streets, road diets, bike lanes, wider pedestrian sidewalks, et cetera. We passed something called the New York City Streets Plan that sets mandates on redesigning a road for safety. And, you know, now we need to take this next step and we don't give up. So we will be keeping up this fight till the end. Everyone at Families for Safe Streets. So, you know, we are an organization nobody should ever have to be a member. We've all lost a family member or suffered a life-altering injury. We started in New York City and we now have 20 chapters across the country. Thank you, Amy Cohen. As we grow up, we learn about math in class. We are taught addition and subtraction, what increases and what can be taken away with a simple symbol change. Today, the symbol changes by the second. Every 24 seconds, the world rediscovers what aftermath means, what minus means, minus father, minus daughter returning from a meal 
minus mother, minus cousins behind his first automobile, we are made to discover too early the mathematics of loss. And every day the lessons find their way into old photos and keepsakes, into a typical Sunday morning sitting on the lips of a farewell prayer or a birthday celebration with an empty seat that now fills the room. This new minus as simple as loss as death is as simple as breath, but we will never change your name to the deceased. You will always live in our hearts as temples we will use to pull dreams from when the darkness kisses us into slumber. We will remember you as mortar to martyrs. Your beauty will remain air circling our lungs and giving us life to move forward even as we fear what this same movement has already taken away. They may have been robbed from the earth, but it is the earth that will love them back onto our tongues, in our poems, prayers, and song, and your names, never forgotten, will forever live on. That was Families Forever Changed, a poem by Shaka Campbell, available at Amy Cohen's Twitter page, Amy L. Cohen. Amy also wanted to let people know that Families for Safe Street offers support services to anyone who has lost a family member or suffered a uh, serious injury. It can be anyone across the U.S. Much of their services are, are now virtual. It's a really, really tough issue. And as advocates, it's really hard to know how to support these incredibly important causes. And I do think that we can call up our elected officials and we don't need to scream at them, but we can press them to understand, try to persuade them. Maybe that's the word is try to persuade people and try to get them to really talk about why isn't he bringing this law up? But sometimes you got to name and shame people. And it just seems to me like Carl Heasty, who is the state assembly speaker, should bring this up for a vote. And I don't understand why he's not. And it's on Twitter and in the transportation alternatives is dealing with it. M. Friedenberg from Transportation Alternatives tweeted that people who've called Heasty's office to ask why the speaker won't allow Sammy's law to be voted on have been told some variation of, I don't know, he can't because it's stuck in the Transportation Committee, which is apparently not accurate, and he hasn't issued a statement. I'm sure he's not listening to this program, but Carl Heasty, if you're listening to it, put Sammy's law up for a vote. If it was your child, you would do it. Call Speaker of the New York State Assembly, Carl Heasty at 718-654-6539 and ask why Sammy's Law hasn't come up for a vote. That's 718-654-6539. So keeping with the idea of the role that public policy plays in creating laws that make our streets safe. Up next, we have an interview with three women, Ella um, Kondrat, who has a blog called Sweet in the Streets, and two other advocates, um, Tanya Garment and Rose Quinn. And they're from upstate New York, and they have been fighting the legal process that wants to put provisions on bike riders, no passengers on bikes, no riding to abreast, no trick riding, no wheelies. I mean, what, what is that? 
It's so outrageous because it all started because somebody wanted to do a bike share and they ended up regulating biking. I mean, it's crazy. It's kind of that whole thing about blaming the victim. No, I mean, if you do a wheelie on the street, what, you're unsafe? All right, let's hear that. So we're here with Ella Kondrat, Tanya Garment, and Rose Quinn, who co-wrote the article, Kingston Bike Law Has Racial Implications. And welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How did this come about? The city seemed to really in earnest this time last year, be talking in public meetings about trying to have a bike share program in Kingston on the lines of like city bike. They started to develop possible um, legislation about what the city would require of a bike share program. It was originally only pertaining to shared bikes. Then... Uh, At some point, the language changed to encompass all bicyclists in the city, and the law basically became very restrictive of bicyclist behavior. So in your article, Kingston Bike Law Has Racial Implications, you included a lot of the law. What we really had to do was like parse out the sections that really did cross over from, right, this is not just about a bike share program, this is actually legislating all bicyclists in Kingston. And so what we chose to highlight were basically those sections. So there was problematic language, I would say, like throughout, even in the bike share language, it really felt like this weird kind of Trojan horse. They added things that were direct contradiction to New York state law, but they also just added a lot of language that was redundant to New York state law that just kind of didn't even need to be in there. It was a really confusing document. So those were the parts that we chose to highlight, those parts where it was really clear that this is clear overstep. For the most part, the law itself was very confusing. There was one part that I actually got a kick out of because, you know, there is New York State legislation that says you cannot drive a bicycle impaired. But yet in their bike share language, they said, oh, we strongly suggest that you don't drink and use the bike share. And it was like, well, wait a minute, that's like kind of a contradiction in the other direction. (laughs) Okay, so did anyone actually read New York state law when when they came up with this? What can't you do on a bike according to this law now? One thing with the e-bikes is that you can't have a passenger on your e-bike. Also, no using electronic devices. So forget your Strava, you're not allowed to use that. Whereas a motorist, has a hands-free option. In this, it's just like, no, you can't use your electronic device. One of the things that was an absolute direct contradiction to New York state law, and I would say also the safety of cyclists is New York state law says that you can ride two abreast. It's very clear in the law. We don't have the greatest laws out there. I actually envy Massachusetts for your share of the road laws, but our laws are pretty, pretty flimsy. But one of the things that really is very clear is that you can ride two abreast and you can take a lane. And Kingston's ordinance changed that. They said you had to ride single file and you always had to give way for traffic. And it was like, well, wait, that's like a direct contradiction of what we're allowed to do. I mean, it's very valid safety reasons for riding two abreast sometimes. So forget about putting your kids on your e-bike. Yeah, and they're on their own in the back of you. Yeah. In front of you. All right. (laughs) Yeah, and and forget about taking the lane if you have to. Like that, New York. These were things that where I really felt like you just 
honestly did not read the law. You, you're kind of making these things up as a motorist saying, well, this is what I would like to see. <laughs> that's what it felt like. And I can't, I have no proof of that, but that's certainly what it felt like. Do you think that they were just not even thinking about bikes? And then when they started thinking about bike share, they just started fearing bikes? Yes. The initial holdup in the law, because it almost went through without any conversation, which was kind of scary. Wow. But uh, there was an objector to the law on the grounds of safety. Like, should we be encouraging any extra bikes? And where that is coming from is the unfortunate truth that in the past three years, we've lost five cyclists on our roads. And this is a pretty small city. It's pretty stark. Part of the reason why we are so involved in this is like, we're just so like overwhelmed with the amount of reports of cyclists getting hit and the increase in traffic violence that we're seeing. And the person who brought that forward, they were more like, oh, the solution to that is let's not encourage more bikes, which of course we don't agree with. It was that kind of faulty reasoning that actually allowed us to be like, just hold this up yeah. so that we have a chance to, to come back. And, and we did, thankfully. Yeah. There was the bike legislation. I mean, the bike share program wasn't perfect in the first place when it went to the common council meeting and they started adding in laws for bicyclists to include laws for all bicyclists. Before that, it was just for the bike share program, but it was not without its problems. It didn't have a lot of public input, even in the bike share program, to make sure that there were going to be things that would keep it from just being a tourist attraction mm -hmm. and actually be a way that people could have access to e-bikes where they otherwise wouldn't or be able to run errands more easily. There was nothing that indicated that they had really considered making sure that this was not just a top-down, uh, whatever the company wanted. Yeah, and also, I mean, we also have a few very contentious infrastructure pro projects here in Kingston that are bike-oriented. Uh, we do have a bike lane that was just introduced that goes down Broadway, which is like the center of Kingston. The motorists see the bike lane as an extreme imposition and Unfortunately, also the bicyclists now see the bike lane as not really doing what it's supposed to do in protecting them. So there's a lot of confusion and there's a backlash to like any of the infrastructure, any attempt to you know, make things equitable and, and create an environment where a cyclist can feel like, all right, well, I'm, I'm welcome here. It's like, if that's almost seen as like dangerous to the cyclist. You know, since this infrastructure came in, though, like people have died. It's a hard nut to crack. I and mean, I think that we need a lot more protected infrastructure, but it also goes back to we also need a lot of community input when we're doing these things mm. um, or else you're going to have a lot of contention and a lot of misunderstanding about this stuff. Yeah. The lack of public engagement to start the process of making legislation for a bike share program is the same way that they have done it with these bike infrastructure projects, the Broadway project, stuff that's on the Empire State Trail that goes through Kingston. All of these were very top-down and very compromised. They all have these great compromises towards the cars. The Broadway has yeah. the most narrow kind of two-way cycle track that you can have so that there could be wider vehicular traffic lanes. Then they don't have good connections either. They really like National Association of City Transportation Officials has a paper that's called Don't Give Up at the Intersection. And Kingston 
that never even considers the intersection. Mm-hmm. Like these, like the, as soon as you hit a corner, it's really dangerous. You've got a protected bike lane. There's trails through um, the woods and kind of people's backyards, the Kingston Green Line. Um, and then there's a little stop sign on those trails that you can't see often because they don't trim the branches around it. So there's a stop sign for bicyclists and no stop sign for cars. You come to the end of the trail, you think that you're protected, you keep going to cross the street, the cars don't expect you. There was a a few weeks ago, there were three crashes in one day. We need to fix our street design. We need to really be paying more attention to it. We need better consultants in the first place. But the person at the meeting when the Common Council had it, he was saying, we don't want to welcome more bicyclists. That same month, earlier that month, there was an email from the chair of that Laws and Rules Committee, and she wrote, I, along with committee members, I believe, are in favor of having a more robust enforcement and safety policy campaign for cycles, be it standard bikes, e-bikes, or the like. However, the shared services system, which is the bike share program, um, placed on hold. Are we able to separate the two? And in the end, that's what they effectively did before um, we wrote our article and then there was a couple more articles written about it um, and it came to light and the common council president was forced to send this back to committee but it almost got voted on the last draft that the laws and rules committee voted forward to be voted into law was all of these crazy laws for cyclists but then the bike share program you were going to have to have 24-hour support on the telephone you're going to have to have insurance Um, There were a bunch of other things that a bike share program would have to do, but they could only have a maximum of five bicycles for the whole city of 24,000, five bicycles, like a rack of bicycles, only to be increased once a year. And only if they could prove that throughout the whole year, the bicycles were taken out an average of three times a day. So it was like, they did it. They like, they squashed the bike share program and they got some loss for bicyclists. It sounds like, okay, maybe they saw that there were these crashes, people were dying, and their response was to stop them from ever biking again. Right. Mm. And and problem solved, right? Yeah. Yeah. But so your article had an impact, and then they had to go back and the law was not passed. Yeah. Seems like that. It does seem like that, you know, for now. I mean, it's coming back. We're not done. It's gone back to committee. Yeah. So, so. but it does seem like at, at the very least, what we've done is, we've forced them to pull out any of the language that has to do with regular bicycles or, or personally owned e- e-bikes. And language for now just has to pertain to their shared bike system. Then it begins the challenge of trying to make sure that we get actually get a shared bike program that is equitable and, and does enhance the transportation system in Kingston. And as Tanya alluded to earlier, is not just uh, you know, I work for a bike rental place. I have no problems with bike rental. I think it's really great, wonderful enterprise, but a bike share program is a little different than bike rental. And it seems as if the city of Kingston has this idea in its head that what it wants to do is compete with bike rental programs, like the tourist programs. And it's like, that's no, that's really not what a shared bike program is supposed to do. It's supposed to be out there for for the use of any citizen some of the fees that they're planning to impose on you know people using these bikes is pretty intense. And that's what we've managed to do for right now. Hopefully really just kind of force the point that 
No, it's not that, you know, as a community that cyclists don't want to have these discussions. I mean, we often have within the community itself, very robust debates about how this stuff should be handled, but it's got to be, you know, it's got to count. There's got to be a discussion in a true community of people, as Tanya and Ella both said, like, there's a lot of people who are, have really taken on bicycling in the city of Kingston, whether by choice or uh, by necessity uh, as their primary means of transportation, those people have to be at the table. You know, one of the things that they wanted to add was like this, this kind of measure where a police officer could look at a bicycle and determine somehow whether that bicycle was roadworthy. And it's like, there's so many problems with that. You know, like I'm a road cyclist primarily. I can't tell you how many people have told me you've got to do something about your tires. They're bald. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're, they're road bike tires. That's what they look like. <laughs> and, you know, I'm imagining police kind of saying this, well, you know, we wrote you a ticket because you're, because it's only equipment, right? So they don't have to actually literally say, it's like the equipment was bad. So they can write you a ticket and or seize your bike for this because they do it in New York City all the time. And it's really totally based on that police officer's discretion. And they may not have any clue what they're looking at when they look at your bike. So I, I'm not comfortable with that at all. There was a stop and frisk police campaign in Kingston and they didn't collect information on the race of the people who were stopped. So they, they don't have the information for those that they stopped, but for those who they arrested, 37% of those people were black, despite only 15% of the population of Kingston being black. I'm not going to speculate on whether this was a conscious bias or an unconscious bias, but obviously there's some kind of a bias going on here. And we can only extrapolate that, you know, with increased bike laws in Kingston, there would be a higher proportion of people of color being stopped, you know, potentially frisked, potentially arrested. We do have a significant amount of people in Kingston who do bike for transportation. We have very diverse populations. So it was very concerning. And one of the parts of the law that we also highlighted was the trick riding, which includes, you know, things like popping a wheelie, which is, you know, something that you see kids doing from time to time. In the Midtown neighborhood, there is no park for people to go to in that neighborhood. So the streets end up being the playground. You know, it kind of leads into this kind of systemic police force that's really unfounded. There's no, I, I haven't seen any evidence. I haven't seen any, any reason to think that this law is actually needed other than pearl clutching. It's broken windows. Yeah. It's literally stop and frisk too, right? Well, so it's interesting that you say that because the, what, Ella is alluding to was, you know, that was kind of the Kingston stop and frisk moment that we had that was, and it was pretty scary. So how this really also ties in with the bicycling aspect is that one of the things for the first time they started doing in the city of Kingston, which they got called out on pretty heavily was pulling over cyclists for things like not having bells in New York state, you have to have a bell on your bicycle 
which I think is in and of itself an absolutely ridiculous law and they need to get rid of it. But you have to have a bell on your bicycle. And we had like New York State troopers pulling over mostly young men of color who were riding bicycles on the basis of not having a bell. And How does a police officer in a car traveling behind a kid know that yeah. they don't have a bell on their bike? You know, it was like, what? And I actually saw the police bring a young man in. They left his bike on the side of the road. The trooper asked me, you know, I was kind of standing there just bearing witness to what was happening. And the trooper said, well, do you want to take his bike? And I was like, yeah, I'll I'll take his bike. So I managed to get a message to this guy who got taken away in cuffs that I had his bike. He came back the next day to my house to pick up the bike. And I said, well, what was the deal? What happened? He said, nothing. He said, they they wrote me a ticket for a bike bell and they let me go. And I was like, they, huh. they took you into custody for a bike bell? And he said, yeah, that was it. And then at that point, he was released. He told me there was another person in there who had the same thing happen to them. I'm a bike educator. I work with the YMCA in Kingston. Our response, only response we could think of at the time was to just get people, I mean, bells and lights on their bikes. So we started clinics to get neighborhood people to bring their, their bikes in. And give them the law and let them know, like, look, you know, you could be stopped for this. So understand and, you know, protect yourself. And also it was a great opportunity for safety, too, because we were able to, you know, get a lot of people lights, which really are a true safety feature that every every cyclist who's riding around at night should have. So there's this direct tie-in to, like, all right, there was this kind of escalation. And then there was the use of bikes for the first time in Kingston. I mean, it was a precedent. I was really very, very concerned about it. That simmered down, thankfully. Haven't heard much about any of that since. But now they come back with, we're going to like kind of covertly kind of come back in with, all right, we're going to add these ordinances that are going to possibly bring more interactions between the police and cyclists. And what we're saying is we don't really think that there needs to be more interactions between the police and cyclists because things have been going pretty okay. The trick riders, as Ella said, you know, like, they, you know, these are kids popping wheelies. And I'm not a fan of seeing kids ride around with no helmets. I'm not a fan of kids like riding around in traffic or anything like that. But this is their neighborhood. This is where they live. This is where they can do these things. These aren't any more a menace than mountain bike kids are. Kids in the suburbs get mountain bike parks and they get forests. You know, if you live in Kingston, you have the sidewalk to go show up with your friends that you can pop a wheelie. I think there's a lot better ways to bring kids into the fold and get them to understand the importance of maneuvering in traffic and keeping themselves safe without criminalizing child behavior. New York State actually does already have an ordinance that was a law that does say that you're supposed to have two wheels on the ground, okay? We actually really did not need this kind of extra step, more empowering ordinance kind of direct rule to the police this is how you can go and enforce this. We, we, we really don't want it enforced. We don't think this is something, an enforceable matter. And there were extras in it. There were things like no speeding on your bicycle. They had that for both e-bikes and standard bikes. Without Interpre- any number. Yeah, yeah. no yeah. number. Interpreted no number. by the police. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, yeah <laughs> no, no riding faster than is reasonable. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the trick riding also had a little part of it where it could be interpreted by the police. Um, and then the condition of the bicycles was also interpreted by the police. Yeah. All these 
things that they would never dare have for motorists. Yeah, yeah. There's a podcast called Arrested Mobility. We um, cited them in the article. There was a recent episode where someone from the NYCLU was interviewed, Daniel Lambright, and he said, extensive research shows that when police officers have more discretion, they aggressively and disproportionately target communities of color. New York is not quite as progressive as you would think. We have like this you know, traffic fatality epidemic going on and they're seriously talking about just raising the speed on the thruway. We're having this discussion about raising a speed limit, and, but we can't have a discussion about lowering a speed limit to 25 or 20. That politically is like uh, unreasonable talk. Thankfully, Ella and Tanya and lots of other people in our area are really getting hip to like, yeah, no, this, this is a conversation that we need to be having. Ella, Tanya, and Rose, thanks for fighting the good fight over there in Kingston. And thanks for your article. Thanks so much. <laughs> the power of bloggers and bicyclists, of course, and people just coming together to stop an injustice like this. There's a great quote by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So speaking of a small group of people making a huge difference, Taylor, you just led Bike the Strike. How was it? Uh, it was great. I, actually, I didn't lead it. A, a writer named Shem Bitterman did. Shem is a active cyclist and, and rider. And he came up with the idea of getting a small group of committed people to ride around to all the striking locations at all the studios in, in Los Angeles. We start in Culver City and make our way around into the valley and support all the writers, WR, um, that are at those spots. And it's been really fun. It's been a great way to, you know, not only CLA, but to support the writers. It's a really wonderful uh, idea and we're doing it every Thursday. And here's some sounds from that ride. I'm here with Shim Bitterman, who is the organizer of Bike the Strike. Shim is a WGA member, and the WGA is on strike from the motion picture producers. Shim, what are we doing here today? We're just uh, biking from all 10 strike locations. We're going to hit Sony and Fox and Amazon and Netflix, CBS, CBS Radford, Universal, Warner Brothers. uh, Disney. Disney. Did I leave anybody else out? Netflix. I said Netflix. They're the evil empire. Right, right, (laughs) right. So tell me why we're biking. We're biking to, to promote human power over AI power. We believe like humans in community is what it's all about. And that's what writing is about. That's I come from the theater. And, and uh, you know, the theater is always about artists getting together and working together. In the television world, that's not as possible anymore. They're pushing writers through rooms, treating them like automatons. And, right you know, churning out scripts. And uh, we think it's wrong. We think that that writers produce best in community and that if we're going to create communal entertainment, it should be made by a community. That's great. So I'll catch you at the next stop. Awesome. And I'm talking with Gigi McCreary. And Gigi's a writer who's doing the bike to strike. What do you write on, Gigi? Oh, what kind of bike do I ride on? Well, the, the yeah. great, great oh, answer for bike on? time. Oh, what do well, I no, ride let's on? let's talk oh, your bike God. first. Okay. Well, my bike is, I think it's like a 1980s stunt jumper, uh-huh. and I have it because I live in Venice, um, and bikes tend to get stolen a lot. But right. like, nobody wants my 1980s stunt jumper, and so 
Yeah, I, I love to write it around. Perfect. And now, what do you write on? What do I write on? I write multicam, uh, well, I write sitcoms, right. uh, comedy for television, and, you know, in the past, I've worked on shows like Friends, Wizards of Waverly Place, I had a show on Netflix called Haters Back Off. So why is this strike important? Oh, gosh. Well, there's a lot of reasons. I, I think the biggest, well, the one that stands out for me is that the tech companies, it really seems like, want to turn this into just a freelance gig, where they're just kind of shortening the period of time that we work. And I think the ultimate goal seems to be, of the streamers, is that that you would just get paid for your scripts. So only, like, a showrunner would work from right, uh, pre-production right. through production, and then other writers would just come and write a script and get a script fee and never right. get a weekly. So right. you just can't live on that. And right. also, it's way too much work for the person who's there the whole time. Right. Right. And... The work really suffers. Right. So it, it doesn't make any sense. It's not good for it's not good for the quality of the work, and ultimately I don't think it's good for the business. Right. And it, and it separates the upper class from the lower class and cuts out the middle class. It most definitely does. Well, we're, we're doing Bike to Strike, and you said you've been riding from home to uh, Sony every day. Yeah, so I ride from Venice up Venice Boulevard. They have a great bike path. Right. It's about three miles, and right. I love it. And then I get to Sony, and then I... Pick and then you walk. And right. then I walk. And then I bike home, stretches me out, and I'm good to go. Great. Yeah. Well, let's hope this doesn't last much longer, but I'm really glad you're biking the strike today. The AMPTP could end this today. I think they should. I wish they would. and um, But I do think they're not going to. <laughs> but well, they'll end it soon enough. It's going to end. And it's not going to be because we fold. Because right. we got nothing to lose right. at this point, And everybody knows it. Right. Right. Well, it's a similar argument to what we're having with making the streets safe. So we're not going to give up either. We are not going to give up making the streets safe. I, all these bike paths, or these bike lanes, are making this possible. It's great. Yeah, it's a game changer. We've been in bike lanes a lot of this, a lot of this route today. Yeah, and I'm in bike lanes every day on my yeah. way to Sony. And yeah. I've told so many people, I love this. I, yeah. I, I, I don't really realize I'm riding on Venice Boulevard. Right. Because I got my own little lane, right. and it's, and the cars leave you alone. The cars leave me alone. I feel totally yeah. safe. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. You can tell that we're out on the picket line by all the honks that are going by. Okay, we are biking the strike, and I'm with Bill Walkoff. And Bill is not only a WGA member, but he's also a SAG member. Bill, welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, tell us why you're doing the Bike the Strike today. It's This is the uh, Venn diagram of all my interests. I'm, I'm on strike. I'm also an avid bike commuter, uh, and the Bike the Strike, we're, we're biking for, from all of the uh, different pickets, and... I, I believe in the dream of a, of a bike-friendly Los Angeles and bike-friendly cities, so I couldn't miss today. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on Bike Talk is about unions, but also I think it just has to do with an egalitarian lifestyle. I mean, isn't that sort of what unions are about and what biking's about? Absolutely. Biking brings everybody out together, and it's really easy to... Get, it's a lot easier to get a bike than it is to get a get car. A car. Totally. And, and uh, it could bring our city together uh, in a way that we've never seen our city come together before and it will really uh allow uh, people who have trouble getting from all different parts home to work yeah home to work to make it just easier and more accessible and uh it's better for the for the world better for the environment as it brings together a lot of los angeles today it's bringing together a lot of writers and actors as we hit all these spots everybody's cheering for us as we we uh come up to each stop you you can't see this uh because you're listening to this but we're all wearing blue wga shirts and i've got a strike sign in my back yeah and, uh, it's it's a sail or a wind block, one of the two. It's it's kind of both. <laughs> there are moments when it helps push me up the hill, and there are moments where I'm like, oh, I'm drafting a little bit. <laughs> and you know, as a biker, because we're riding around and he's got his sign, and we're all in blue, cars are honking. 
in support of the strike. But as a biker, you can't feel like they're honking at us because we're on the road. So this is one of those times when the honks are good. I think they're mostly in support of us, uh, but it also keeps me, you know, extra visible, so they won't hit me, hopefully. So the Bike to Strike rides are on Thursdays. We go different routes. Next time we'll be in Hollywood. Bill, thanks a lot for coming to the Bike to Strike ride and for being on Bike Talk. Oh, thanks, Taylor. Taylor, thank you for standing up for writers. I'm actually a writer. I'm in the union. It's called the WGA, Writers Guild of America. And Taylor, you're in a union, but you're a you're an actor. So you're in SAG, right? Screen Actors Guild? Yeah, correct. SAG after it's called now, right? And, and you guys voted to uh, possibly join us on the picket lines, right? right? Well, we we are. The, the actors are, are right now doing the negotiations with the producers. And our contract, our current contract ends June 30th. Um, and we voted 98.8% to authorize a strike if we can't make a deal. Um, the directors, the the DGA, Directors Guild of America, has already signed a contract with the producers. So it's just up to the actors and, and the writers now to fight to keep the middle class. That's one of the things that we've been talking about. And that's where bikes come in. And that's what so many people talked about on the ride of how bikes connect people and unions connect people and how bikes support um, people of all wages. You don't need to have a, a $60,000 Porsche to drive on the lot. I often ride my bike to the lot when I work and park my bike in a little parking place that says Taylor Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bikes and studios actually go really well together. A studio is like a perfect 15 minute city because there's no cars. Everyone's in golf right. carts and bikes. Um, and I've done that before. I, I've, I've been on studio lots where I, I just rode my bike around. And I think you're right. It is a symbol of egalitarianism. It's so accessible um, to people from more people, more people with disabilities can use a adaptive bike right. than can drive. And it's also about your pocketbook. The cheapest car in the market is going to cost you $8,000 a year all in. That's right. a lot of money. And I think bikes can really be a force of good. And, and it just goes to this sort of bigger question of what kind of country do we want? Do we want a country, you know, where everybody's making a fair wage and has health care and has mobility, you know, or do we want the, the country that I think some of these studios want us to have? Right. I think we want a country that values a person who rides a $300 bike as much as they value a person who rides a $30,000 car. Yeah. Most bikes I've had were $50. I like the beach cruisers. I get them off Facebook marketplace <laughs> um, and they barely have brakes. But I think that what the studios want is, as someone said, the tech companies want to eliminate the cost of labor. They want to eliminate labor. And I'm like, these are your neighbors. <laughs> these are your friends. Right. Right. This is our creative right. community and you want to eliminate them. It's such an interesting time with so much at stake and public policy just seems to have a huge role to play right now. Sure does. And that's, I think, the crux of our show today is be aware of what laws are being discussed and voted on on neighborhood councils, on city councils, state assembly. Be aware of how people are trying to change laws to make our streets less safe and not more safe. Hey, you want to hear some sweet bike music? I thought you'd never ask. We have. Absolutely. This one's done by our co-host, Seamus, and his son, Eamon. One, two, three, four. Pedal spin. Wheels in motion. 
bike talk if you have a story a tip or a topic head over to biketalk.org and send us a message talk again next week get on your bike sit on the seat put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around ride it all around Oh, got yourself a bike.